Welcome to the very first podcast for uh, Capitalism, Nature, Socialism. Uh, it is a veritable pleasure to be in the presence of uh, so many wonderful uh, comrades and to have a conversation between uh, Linda Kikivich and uh, Noura Al-Khalili. Uh, my name is Salvatore Engel Di Mauro. I'm editor of um, Capitalism, Nature, Socialism. The... Um, the theme um, about which we are going to be start, starting to talk about came out um, um, from the ideas with respect to organizing a special issue back in 2012. And uh, a special issue was indeed uh, published in uh, the following year, uh, thanks to the arduous work of many of those who wrote for it. It was an attempt, and I'm not sure how successful it was, to, um, as the title for the special issue, um, states, um, an attempt to bridge indigenous and socialist perspectives, particularly Marxist perspectives, because there, there are long-standing miscommunications, um, ill feelings, uh, and, uh, and perhaps uh, also, not perhaps, justifiable uh, suspicions and uh, rejections on the part of many indigenous activists with respect to uh, at least some socialist currents. The, the issue that I'm talking about from Capitalism, Nature, Socialism is volume 24, issue three. If anybody's interested, it would be uh, great to know and I can provide uh, PDFs if people cannot access the articles that they're interested in. It, it, um, it featured, as I uh, intimated before, the, uh, the, the work on the commons and in Palestine by Linda Kikivich and um, among other works that were featured in that special issue uh, was a, an introduction by Hugo Blanco, uh, a, an amazing uh, Peruvian uh, indigenous activist um, who was actually on the brink of being executed in the 1970s, if I remember correctly, uh, by the powers that be. There was there is um, a wonderful contribution from Francisco Salas Perez, who I think is still at CUNY Graduate Center. Um, looking at ways of uh, um, of merging Marxist insights with um, indigenous materialisms or indigenous forms of materialism, then there were other uh, amazing contributions, and uh, notably by Nick Esters, uh, who I hope everybody will know about him. Uh, he is one of the founders of the Red Nation, and also uh, author who has become very well uh, noted for his uh, very sharp work. And he wrote about Wounded Knee in that special issue. One of, one of the first uh, writings uh, that appeared in uh, Capitalism and Socialism from Nick Esters. And then finally, there were some white folks who contributed their own understanding of the problems and also uh, a very important work from the late Fred Ho, saxo uh, saxophonist uh, who, uh, who unfortunately is no longer with us and uh, who also had some very important insights to share about how to um, go about uh, um, having a convergence between these many different indigenous um, uh, movements and these uh, different socialist currents and how they have so much in common. So um, I would like then to, and I'd be more than happy to at this point, especially to seed uh, the um, um, the microphone to uh, Linda Kikilix to finally get started on this very important conversation on the commons. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Said. 
it's such a pleasure to be here, to be part of this podcast, uh, this first podcast that we're putting together for Capitalism, Nature, Socialism. It's an idea that we have to make the, the conversations that we have in our writings in the journal and beyond far more accessible to folks who may not really articulate much with academia, um, but still have so much more and still have so much more to offer. Uh, so the article that I was asked to write for the special issue was uh, based on my work in Palestine, where I was, uh, I had been, I had just finished a dissertation about mapping Palestine and land use. And I'm so excited and honored today that in talking about that piece, I'll be in conversation with a great friend, Noura Al-Khalili, who is a Palestinian geographer and who I met uh, several years back because we were, you know, we, we were at the American Association of Geographers Conference in Los Angeles. And a few of us got together and put, it, put together a panel on the um, comparing Mexico and Palestine. And because we were so close to the US-Mexico border, we took a field trip. Uh, and 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 experienced the wall that exists there, and talked a lot about similarities and differences with the apartheid wall right now in the West Bank in Palestine. And so there's a lot to talk about that about uh, with uh, in terms of that trip, but maybe I'll save that for another occasion, or maybe it'll come up. But um, I just want to uh, allow Nuda to introduce herself just a bit, so you can hear her voice, and we'll be in conversation about this article. Thank you, Yarafiqa, Linda. Um, so thank you, everyone. I'm happy to be here today. And I look forward for our conversation, Linda. So as Linda said, I'm a geographer. I did my PhD in human geography on land enclosures, uh, specifically in Jerusalem and these areas that are within Jerusalem, but thrown behind the separation wall. And currently I'm doing a postdoc in human ecology. I'm looking at renewables and land enclosures through renewables in North Africa, specifically Tunisia and Morocco. Um, I'm based in Copenhagen at the moment. And uh, yeah, I don't know what else should I say. I, I stick to that. And as Linda said, yes, we've done this road trip together and we've experienced um, borders together in Mexico. And the return, I remember it was a bit problematic. We were not allowed to come back to the US and we have been, I don't know if we were in the same car, Linda, maybe not, you weren't with us, but we were kept uh, somehow, um, they let us uh, at the border and they wouldn't let us somehow enter. And I was with another Palestinian friend. So we were really re-experiencing really similar situations that we somehow experience uh, in Palestine while crossing borders. And I guess let's uh, devote the time for talking about your work, and then we could have our conversation on how we both experienced uh, our work on the Masha, the commons in Palestine. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really great. Because um, uh, I also, I, yeah, I'm very happy that you brought that up about your work too, because I want to also point out after we talk about my article, like what, what you've also written, if that's okay with you. Yes, of course. Yeah, wonderful. Mm. So maybe I can begin by just giving a very brief uh, overview of what the article was that I wrote, and then maybe we can talk about it and then see how it jibes with your work and also with, with, 
real questions on the ground of why this question might matter. Um, so the article that I wrote for this for the special issue uh, bridging indigenous and socialist perspectives is an article entitled when the carob tree was the border on autonomy and Palestinian practices of figuring it out. And I got the title when the carob tree was the border from a conversation I was having in Palestine while I was doing my field research I was interviewing geographers and advisors who worked a lot on the, the peace process, the so-called peace process between the Palestinian leadership and the state of Israel since 1993 forward. Very famously, Palestinians did not have a, a big map making impulse or, or cartographic institution. <clears throat> and so very famously, they were signing Israeli maps. And this is something that Edward Said, a late Palestinian intellectual, was very concerned about and talked about the need to counter map. And he's one of the, ver the very first people that we know as geographers who came up with that now very famous term in the field of critical ge uh, cartography within geography, counter map. So counter map is a way that many indigenous peoples have been able to make land claims is that many indigenous peoples didn't have uh, modern maps the way that we know them these these maps that are very mathematically accurate on paper on a cartesian grid uh, those maps are very helpful for folks outside of the land folks who don't know the land very well if you know the land very well you really you likely do not need a map and palestinians knew the land very well they did not need maps until their society, their new history would call for it, which was then in the 1990s when they had to, when they entered into negotiations with the state of Israel to create a, a Palestinian state side by side to Israel. And so now you need a map to demarcate the border. And so this question of what the border is going to be between Israelis and Palestinians is the big question of the peace process, the Oslo Accords. And it's it's been pretty stagnant for, for all this time. And so when I was doing interviews in Palestine, I was listening to a geographer who said something that really interested me that very few people ever ask him about. And he said that there needed to be more work done on the social relations people have with borders. Because before there were these modern maps in Palestine, which was not very long ago, people would ask each other. So if you're working the land, you would ask your neighbor, you would talk with your neighbor to point out where the limits of the land use was going to be. And he said, an example was the border is that carob, is from that carob tree over there to that other carob tree over there. And I was fascinated by that because so much of my research in my training, especially with uh, accompanying the Zapatistas and, and that whole autonomous movement uh, <clears throat> that's connected to that, especially in Latin America, uh, I was trained to, and I'm still in training, to look, to highlight those practices that are very invisible, but where power is circulating in more egalitarian ways. And so what I found in doing this research that of, of how borders were understood before colonialism in Palestine, what I found is that if you're going to 
be in conversation with your neighbor about where the border is. You yourself need to live with the consequences of that decision. And so then those decisions take a lot of time. They take a lot of care, a lot of trust. But when the British came in the uh, right after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, after the First World War, the British came and took over Palestine, colonized Palestine. They wanted to break those relationships. They wanted to make it so that everybody would now have to go to the centralized colonial administration and ask them where the borders were. They were going to map Palestine in private, into private property and they would keep those maps in a centralized place. And so now you didn't have to talk to your neighbor. They acted as if you're, they were doing everybody a favor. Now you don't have to talk to your neighbor. Any disputes can be resolved by just coming to the colonial administration and we'll figure it out. And so then what that does is it removed power, exercises of power from below, from everyday people up to a concentrated uh, administration uh, that would have then power over people. So there's much more to say, but uh, I'll leave it at that for right now in terms of the, um, the summary of the article. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know, Nura, maybe you have any, any questions on that or anything that might have triggered your imagination. Um, I have to say that the article I wrote was really very much inspired by what Linda wrote. So I basically, I've, I've written it later. And so Linda's article has been very important for my work and not only Linda's feedback and the conversations we had. And... Um, well, while reading, I mean, I know your work and I have reread it, of course, and then I reread my work. And um, there's two things that I I'm interested that we talk about the past and the present in terms of Masha'a, because I think there has been a lot of changes in relation to how people perceive the Masha'a nowadays and what has remained from the Masha'a given the British enclosures. Um, because the Ottomans did not manage to break the Masha'a, 70% of the land remained uh, as common land. It was the British that basically managed to partition the land and, uh, and we are living still the consequences of basically the, the war that happened in the Nakba and the loss of Palestine homeland and the creation of the refugee camps. And also I'm interested to talk about the refugee camps and in their relation to the Masha'a nowadays, um, because we both worked in two different refugee camps. I worked in Shafat, uh, which is within Jerusalem, yet behind the wall while you worked in Aida camp in Bethlehem, which is in the West Bank in area A, I would say, right? So would you like to talk about the Masha'a through your own work? Um, maybe the more the contemporary, I would like to know what was your experience with the people that you've been um, engaging with in Haida camp and how did the Masha'a come up in the contemporary um, while you did your fieldwork? Yeah, the Masha'a. The Masha'a is the closest Arabic term, uh, I believe, that exists to, to, for the commons. So this yeah. question of the commons in, in Marxist movements and anti-capitalist movements has been very important in that with the, with the growth of capitalism, what was very important for that to happen, for capitalism to grow, was to dispossess people from access to land. And a lot of land access uh, before capitalism uh, all over the world, and especially in uh, outside of Europe, 
but I imagine within Europe. I'd love to learn more about these histories in Europe. But for sure in the Americas and in, in Palestine and neighboring areas, there's land that was not held um, as private property, which is a big reason why colonizers would come and call us backward because we didn't have a concept of land as private property. And so that's a very strange to think about for those of us raised in modernist schools. Like, well, what, how else do you relate to land if it's not as an object of private property? Well, when we listen to stories about many people who are still around to who have this experience of working common lands and there's many many in Mexico although that's being eroded quite a bit the ejido system is what it's called in Mexico the it, it's land that people have access to but communities themselves decide uh, land use right so every couple of years uh, according to changes in family size or village needs people will have land redistributed. And of course, according to quality and the long, long, long discussions about it, about how land will be used. And it's important because it makes it so that you always have access to land. So even if you're not employed, even if you can't find a job, you'll not starve if you know how to, how to grow food, for example. You can also, land access is also important for housing. It's also important for, uh, maintaining community security, a lot of those very basic life-giving processes start with the question of land. And so when, when capitalism was beginning to grow and, and still what it needs to do is make it so that we don't have access to land so that we all are forced to sell our, our labor power for a wage and then interact with money in order to to, to, to do the life-sustaining activities. So in Palestine, when I was doing my research about what the commons were like in Palestine and what they are like in Palestine, I didn't find very much. I ended up, uh, it was a lot of scholars who had done work on, on um, land from the Ottoman land codes, which was the middle of the 19th century. As the Ottoman empire was falling, it needed to, kind of like reinvent itself. And so it started to adopt a lot of modernist ideas and the titling of land was important. And there was titling of land in terms of property ownership, but a lot of people, a lot of peasants in Palestine and neighboring Lebanon, what is now Lebanon, Syria, before all of these borders existed, they would use the land, they might title it uh, with a, with, with a, a notable, a person or, or, or a local person, uh, but they themselves wouldn't hold it as private property. And that was so that they could avoid paying taxes uh, to, to the authorities and to also, and avoid conscripting their children into the military. And so there was a lot of local use of land, a lot of local uses and customs uh, that are pretty invisible in a lot of the colonial records, except for the times when they talk about how the colonists hate the common lands. In Palestine, the commons was the greatest obstacle for British colonialism. And there were even the Arab revolts from the 30s, the, the latter part of the 1930s, had a lot about this in the colonial documents, talking mostly about how as the British were coming in to map out land, to make it private property, to have perfect borders and all of that, 
they were encountering resistance because peasants, Palestinian peasants, many of them not literate, incredibly intelligent, were able to see that whenever they saw a pattern that whenever there was land that was as as the you know it was called in the British it was quote unquote settled settled title was settled to it, then Palestinians would be dispossessed from that land. Many European Jews would buy it, or just Europeans in general would buy it, and then kick out their local population. And so then with the revolts that took place in the 1930s, they're in the British documents. They're talking about how these peasants keep breaking the cartographers in the surveyors instruments making it impossible to map a lot of the land and what i ended up finding in this article is that the reason why there's a west bank as we know it why the un would later not partition the west bank into the state of what what they were suggesting would be the state of israel was largely because of that defense because peasants didn't allow the british to map there and so I found this and I was not really surprised, sadly, that there wasn't a lot about this in the Palestinian studies or in the academic or activist literature, largely because much of the literature has, has understood the peasants themselves were backwards, that it's the notable urbanites, Palestinians who spoke like five different languages and were very cosmopolitan. Like a lot of the history is focused on, on urban, uh, more modern Palestinians and not peasants, but there's so much incredible history about what peasants have done and being able to understand what the whole surveying scheme was doing and the question of land was really important. And I argue it's, it's, it's the, at least why, you know, we have the West Bank still as Palestine is because of this resistance. So what I found in, um, in my work was that one, there's a lot of fascinating history on the defense of the commons in Palestine. And uh, sadly in the academic and activist literature, I didn't find a lot about it, um, but it looks like it's changing. And I, I was very excited to, to learn about your work, Nura, because my, my piece in Capitalism, Nature, Socialism is mostly focused on the pre-1948 uh, existence of the commons. In my field work in Palestine, I found that not too many people knew about it uh, in that in in that way, or um, but we're starting to become interested, especially because when we think about the question of of having to go to work to even to just to buy to get money to buy food to pay, to, to sell your labor power for somebody to somebody else so that you can get money just to buy food or to have housing. It's become really, it's, it's becoming more and more common as that's just what you do. And these histories of how things were done before and how they could be inspirational were starting to erode. So I was really happy, Nura, uh, to see your work. So Nura's article is entitled, Enclosures from Below. Musha in Contemporary Palestine, and it was published in Antipode 2017. It's volume 49, number four. And Nura, I wonder if uh, maybe we can move it on to you because what you did in your work is talk about the, as your, the subtitle of your article says, the Musha in Contemporary Palestine, what, what you found out about the way that, that Palestinians themselves today think about the Musha, relate to the Musha 
I wonder if you might say a bit about what you found. Um, okay, I will speak about my work, but I thought maybe in the camp, people also relate to the camp as a common space, no? I mean, I think camps have this different relationship among like people, how they relate to each other and uh, there's no difference between public and private space and the rooftops. So I thought that was very interesting in your work. Um, it seems this is like the new commons in the camp. I'm not talking about the cities. It's very different within the urban space of the West Bank. Would you like to talk a little bit about the, maybe people's relations in refugee camps, specifically Aida? And then I can speak about what I, what I experienced in Sharfat. I love that question so much. When we think about the commons, usually we think about land. We think of, and sometimes, sometimes in, in Western thought, it's understood as an object still. So there's a very famous essay um, called The Tragedy of the Commons. And the writer talks about the commons as an object, as resources, as things. In my piece, and what I find more helpful to understand, to, uh, a more helpful understanding of the commons is to understand the commons as a practice, as a social relation. It's not an object, it's the way that we relate to what is common. And in the case of land, what is common is common lands or grazing or orchards, things like that. <clears throat> but we have to relate to them in a common way. And so in the camp, you're totally right. I love, I love that framing. And the, camp, the camps have become common in many ways in that they're, um, they're spaces that are not privately owned in, in, in that traditional sense. Like they're not, Palestinians are not, from what I understand, and you can for sure say more, from my experience in Ida camp, what I saw was Palestinian refugees who didn't understand themselves as individualistic beings, but as beings as part of a greater collective. And that, sure, sure, sure the greater collective is Palestine. There's also that very intimate collective that is the camp. Everyone who was not allowed to return to their villages, even if they're from different villages, recreate the camp in a way where they have a very, uh, a bittersweet relationship to it. Um, they, they don't like it, it's like the conditions, they don't like the conditions, they don't like they're, they're forced into, into it. At the same time, they've grown up in, in the camp, they have incredibly close and intimate friendships and relations with folks. In Ida camp, uh, was been really nice to see is, uh, and this happened after, after I got there, um, but it's been really nice to see friends share that they've created urban gardens now. And so this recreation of land and planting in any, any possible way that you can. And again, they're not owned by any individual. They're a way to continue practicing all of these knowledges that their parents and grandparents tell them about, but without land access, they get lost. And so that's one way that I've seen it being recreated. For sure, it's, it's a common space in that it is it is a practice as a, a collectively shared space and not as a, like in you know, suburbs or even in the United States. Sadly, the difference here would be that we might have a lot of population density, but a lot of us don't know even our own neighbors. And that's absolutely not the case in a place like the camp. Um, maybe I can speak a bit about what I experienced in Sharfat. Sharfat is the only camp 
uh, that is located within Jerusalem. Now it's thrown behind the separation wall and it's completely suffocated by the wall and it's somehow surrounded by three settlements. Um, well, given that it's going these extreme situations, um, what I encountered in my fieldwork um, that the uh, contractors who are basically from the refugee camp of Shafat have noticed that there are some remaining uh, common land um, and that has been basically um, squatted, let's say, uh, taken by um, those contractors and they have constructed um, unlicensed um, buildings in it in order to host the, the displaced people from Jerusalem. As you know, people in Jerusalem, uh, Jer Jerusalemites are not allowed to expand. They can't, um, um, they, they're not allowed to expand exactly within the city. So they need to find an alternative to their living, extreme living conditions. So these areas, there are different areas behind the wall that are still within the Jerusalem boundary have become um, their shelter from um, basically being um, displaced, forcefully, dis forcefully displaced. And given that they cannot go live in West Bank, so they need to find areas that are still within Jerusalem in order to maintain their uh, Jerusalem ID cards. So the commons have been um, basically partitioned and broken into private uh, pieces, and they have been used in order to build on them these massive unlicensed buildings that are hosting the displaced Palestinians from Jerusalem. That's why I call it enclosures from below. Um, the, um, the reason that I've met with different contractors and they, for them, they are defending the commons. And their argument that if we do not uh, do that, then they will be um, seized and taken by the Israeli authorities for the expansion of the settlements that are around this camp. So this is a very um, complicated argument because um, they think that the Palestinians in Jerusalem are completely forgotten by the Palestinian Authority. There's nothing that the PA has been, is doing for Jerusalem. And the refugees also are completely um, um, forgotten as well. So they think that what they're doing is an Amal Watani, a national act in, in a way, as a way to protect the land. Um, the sad part is that this land is no longer a Masha' land, it has become privatized land and it's used for um, um, a commercial way of getting money and profiting. And this has also broken the common way of living within the camp. So the contractors who have become basically experts in doing that and gaining money, it created some sort of different class formation within the camp. So it has broken also this common sort of social relations among the refugees themselves. And if you are a contractor, then you have become rich and you can move out of the camp and live in one of these buildings. Or maybe there's another area where those who have managed to, to profit from this act to build a bigger house around the camp. So there has been a lot of changes in the nature of the camp and in the nature of the land. And... Um, I cannot judge them because I am not living there. It's very horrible and it's very oppressive to live um, in that uh, refugee camp. It's one of the hardest situations, I think, in relation, like in comparison to other refugee camps in West Bank and um, I don't know about Gaza, but let's say West Bank, Shafat camp. And so it's a way for them to survive and to maintain um, some space around the camp and not to, to kind of resist their suffocation by the settlements that are surrounding them. Um, 
so it is a very sort of contradictory situation between defending the commons by privatizing them and using them for profit, which is the opposite of what was the struggle um, before, um, let's say before 1948, when the peasants were basically defending the commons to keep them as commons. But now the struggle has become defending the commons in order to partition them and to keep them from the Israeli land grab but we have to build on them because it's not only in Shafat, I think also West Bank. Um, now people are afraid of empty land. So if you have a land, you need to um, have a tabu. Tabu is basically the land ownership because if you keep it without some sort of identification, it could be easier for the Israelis to, I mean, they already grab land without the need, without uh, any excuse, even if you have a land ownership. But still, um, there's um, a lot of uh, encouragement for people to somehow identify the, the borders, the boundaries of their land as a way to protect it from being confiscated and to build on it. So urbanization has become a tool for the Palestinians to protect their land and the commons, I would say. This is what I have noticed uh, briefly to say. Yeah, so then we have a situation in Palestine where under such a brutal occupation and the occupation Israeli uh, follows a, a, a very liberal modernist logic, it, 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 or at least it likes to show that it does in terms of laws and in terms of courts. And it uses these laws and courts to say, look, all of this land was not titled. There was no private property. And so we're going to just take it over. And so then what that does for many Palestinians is say, oh, shoot, we really need to title as much land as we possibly can or, or too bad that we didn't title all that land back in the day. And a lot of the time what gets erased from from that lamentation, it's a real lamentation, but what gets erased from that is that in the end, it really is violence that's doing this. Like the facade is, is law, but Israel will do whatever it can. It will use legal means if it's more efficient, if it's more effective, or it'll use violent means according to, and Israel of course is not different from any other state that would do it. The United States does this all the time. Uh, it uses discipline or control or just outright violence according to what's gonna be more efficient for it. So then we have this situation in Palestine where we begin with the violent, violent, uh, I don't even want to call it encounter. We begin with violence, violent domination, colonialism. It takes as much land as possible. And in fact, uh, there was very little land that was actually uh, settled and titled by Europeans before the state of Israel was created, most of that state, most of the state was created through war. Very, very little, like a, less than 20% was created through actually buying land. And so then we have that situation. And so then what Nura, what you're, what you're describing about the contemporary moment is that we have this refugee camp that has a land that was not titled, land that was understood as common land, that was, that was related to as common land that is now in order to protect it from further encroachment by Israel, then gets titled into private property. I can totally understand that as a, as a strategy for sure, like to maintain Palestinian land. What worries me when we do, when we do this, and, and it's, it's actually common 
all over the world from the counter mapping projects I followed with indigenous peoples trying to, you know, use the, the, uh, the law of the oppressor against the oppressor, that strategically it could be super helpful. A lot of the time, though, it's not done strategically, like with a bigger goal that guides it. And what ends up happening is a lot of indigenous movements end up actually believing that land is an object to be owned, to be controlled, and then no longer practice mm. those comment, those relations in common uh, anymore. And so then like what worries me a lot when we do the counter mapping and from what I've seen and many, many of us geographers who, who help counter map as well, this is very common for us to see is that we're very happy to assist and support with counter mapping uh, yet we see that if it's not accompanied by a strategy that is outside the modernist paradigm, uh, then consciousness ends up being developed as a modernist consciousness that where you now understand land as an object, no longer as a living being that is part of, part of you and that you are part of it. And I use the example quite a bit of the olive trees. Like when I first started learning about how Israel uproots olive trees all of the time, uh, Palestinian olive trees that are thousands of years old. I first heard about them as um, private property, that that's Palestinian private property. It needs to be defended just like any other pro private property should be defended. But then when I went to Palestine and I started to listen to um, especially peasants, but not just peasants, but, or, 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 but, but many people, uh, they would talk about olive trees as members of the family, not as objects of property. But the discourse that I was hearing as, a, as someone in the West following the Palestinian solidarity movement, following Palestine studies, was that olive trees are private property. And I can understand wanting to articulate with Western sensibilities, like the thing that's sacred to Western sensibility is private property. And so like, let's, let's talk about their sacred. Let's make these relations between the sacred. Uh, what I found though, then uh, becoming the truth for Palestinians, at least in the recorded record, was that olive trees then are private property. I almost, I don't think I've seen anything written in English as much as I've looked. I'm sure that it exists. Please, someone point that out to me. That talks about palace. That, that talks about olive trees as members of the family. That's mostly things that I hear on the ground. And I wonder, wow, if we could really just talk about or listen more about how an olive tree is a member of a family. Like, what other questions that would raise? What other possibilities or avenues that would open up, not just for Palestine, but for so many of us? And I wonder then um, what you see in Shuafat in terms of titling the Musha to protect it. Do you see that as accompanied by a strategy or, or do you see that the consciousness of Palestinians is becoming one where they do believe that land is an object and, and should be private property? What did you find, Nura? Well, I wish I could say um, that it wasn't um, driven by profit and uh, somehow of an individualistic act but I found out, I think, that the people I met who are the contractors, and they are originally from the refugee camp, they were more driven by profit. But it was um, a way to justify their act using the national sort of act as a collective one. While it was not on the ground, it wasn't done collectively, it was done individually. 
but when it's bigger numbers it looks like it's collective but it was done on like different like each contractor would do his work alone and the profit is personal basically um, I could see that there has been a sort of division and a break in the Palestinian um, society um, and in the way we view our struggle. And I mean, I understand, I don't blame them. I mean, these are people that have been struggling a lot and living in the worst conditions and completely forgotten. In Jerusalem, they are forgotten because they have Jerusalem ID cards and also they are refugees, they have been forgotten. So they needed to fend for themselves and to find, to find their own ways to survive. Um, when I used to go to the refugee camp, it is really hard to live there. I mean, you have the wall surrounding you and behind the wall, you have like three settlements around you and the spaces keeps on getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And of course, you don't have any infrastructure. And um, so it is a way to, to, to survive. But that's very sad that, you know, you, you, you become like your, the struggle for liberation and the way we relate to land is becoming very minimal. It's more about surviving on an individual level. So, um, but this is a case. I mean, that does not represent um, every Palestinian. I mean, now we could see that there's more, like la the, la the latest, uh, what has been happening in, um, in, in 48 Palestine and in Sheikh Jarrah and West Bank, actually you see a sort of, um, Another, like there's a new wave of this kind of collective sort of uh, uh, struggle that people are somehow uniting as Palestinians, regardless if you are a Palestinian of Gaza or West Bank or 48 or Jerusalem. So um, it's not static. And I think every specific area has its own sort of um, situation. So I, we cannot generalize that this is the case for the rest of Palestine. But um, this is what I found, and that was in 2014, 15, until it got published, that was 2017. I don't know what's happening now in Shafat. I didn't have the opportunity to revisit. But I know that these buildings that have been constructed are under uh, um, constant threat by the Israeli authorities to demolish them because they are actually, they're not licensed. So even if you live there and you're a fragile element. I mean, at any moment you will be evicted again from these also oppressive sort of um, urban um, buildings. And um, so it's not a solution, it's just a strategy for now. Um, maybe these areas would be also taken out of Jerusalem completely and handed to the Palestinian Authority and then all the people living there because they hold uh, Israel, uh, Jerusalem ID cards, they would need to go back into the city of Jerusalem. So they will be empty buildings, uh, maybe uh, a city of birds. And that's one of the contractors. He told me a story that if the Israeli authorities uh, hand these areas to, to, the, uh, to the Palestinian authority, then these buildings, these humongous, like enormous buildings would become empty and they would become a city like filled with birds and like somehow, um, completely um, left out. Uh, maybe then the maybe then they will be used as a common space. I don't know. I mean, the the thing that nothing is static and things keep on changing because the situation is always somehow changing and um, the violence is always there and it's becoming more and more um, um, like heavier. So, um, yeah. Thank you so uh, much for that. Oh, I'm sorry, Nora. 
No, I'm just uh, think I'm just returning back in time to that period when I was uh, in Shafat and um, and what has been happening in there um, recently in Palestine. So um, maybe there is a shift now that there's more of a sense of collectiveness picking up because we have been damaged by the Oslo Agreement and by this new by all the neoliberal policies that have been brought and imposed on us, and we are colonized. So. Um, when you say, when you ask me if the contractors see the land as an object, I guess we, yes, because this is part of the colonization process that people have been going through. So even the way that you relate to land changes uh, maybe unconsciously. And because the conditions are so hard, so it becomes a mode to survive. Um, but the new generation, I mean, a lot of the young people are basically aware of all this and they are somehow um, acting collectively and um, somehow rejecting uh, all this neoliberal um, paradigm and um, against the Palestinian Authority. And uh, so this is another thing, you know, people are right also are voicing their discontent and annoyance with the, with the, the, the Palestinian regime that we have. And, and um, so how do we move towards decolonization and what do we mean by decolonization on the ground and more conceptually? Because conceptually, we don't want borders. We don't want any state, but on the ground, I don't know what would that mean? Yeah, that's so, that's so real. Uh, I, I love so much this space and in that it is a space right now that we're hosting on the podcast with Capitalism, Nature, Socialism, because we're able to have these kinds of conversations that are a far more advanced level uh, about, you know, questions about decolonization and the challenges that Palestinians are going through without even having to have the conversation of the Palestine 101, where we try to convince everybody that Palestinians are deserving of dignity and all that. Like we're way beyond that, which allows us to have conversations like this with a lot of compassion and a lot of self-reflection like you know when you talk about uh when you're when you're in a condition of of colonization you do get removed more and more from land and that really changes your consciousness and I speak for myself too as a, someone whose ancestors very close ancestors are Native American and you know I myself only in Palestine and in Chiapas learned about the, the different ways of relating to land. I didn't learn that here in my upbringing in the United States um, because what colonization does really is, is has us become other people. So, which is why I think your, your piece is so important in your work because these are the, the, the folks who are privatizing the commons in Shafat are refugees and they are, they are, their family line is peasants. They've worked with land. And now then what kind of transformation do we all undergo in terms of the type of people we are, who we become and what we value when we're under these this violent conditions of colonization? And so then how do we understand that with a lot of compassion while at the same time have hopes that we can all do something different, not just, not just Palestine, obviously, because the whole world, the whole world will need to change in order for, for us to really get justice in Palestine. And that begins with all of us. So uh, why don't we open it up in the last few minutes that we have 
to any questions, any Q&A from folks that are joining us here in our conversation. Um, uh, any questions that you might have about uh, Palestine that maybe we took for granted and didn't clarify? Because <laughs> this is a topic of, of course, very cl close to Nura all her life. Uh, and so we may be saying some terms that we didn't define. So please, this is a time to allow us to clarify anything or any thoughts that, that anyone might have about uh, the commons in general, whether it's in Palestine, in the region, or where you live or where you're from. Mazen has a question. Adelante, compa. Hi, thank you very much for this conversation. This is really um, uh, thought provoking and uh, thought stimulating. And as uh, you mentioned, Linda, this is uh, far way advanced than the uh, common conversations that are uh, had about Palestine usually. I have a couple of questions that relate to the, uh, to the commons generally, but specifically in relationship to the, uh, to the, to, to, Palestinian history. But before I, I, uh, I ask my questions, I want to mention your article in the Annals on countermapping. For those who are interested in countermapping, you should check it out. It's, it's a fascinating article. I learned a lot from it. And it's, uh, it also uh, uh, speaks to the uh, what could be done on the ground, so to speak, when the ground is not necessarily the, the literal ground, but a very important ground uh, con uh, uh, of contention, which is uh, how to draw boundaries and where to draw boundaries and how to erase villages and not to erase villages. Uh, I was wondering if there's anything in the colonial discourse about land, not in terms of property, but in terms of development that uh, has allowed its uh, expropriation. I know that in the case of British colonialism, development has been very much in the strategic discourse of uh, expropriating land uh, dispossessing uh, indigenous people of their land uh, on the on the ground that it has not been developed or it has not been developed efficiently and development of course is so wide a concept that you know an olive tree that has been maintained for a thousand years is not development development is uh, something that is uh, defined by the colonial liberal uh, capitalist uh, framework, but also a Bedouin village is not development. I don't know if you've learned recently about the uh, forced expulsions and the Naqab, uh, whole Bedouin villages have, are being raised to make space for development. Uh, so I was wondering if this question of development, which is of course also in the foundational myth of the Zionist project since the 1880s, a land without people, um, if it has been part of the colonial uh, process of, of expropriating and, and privatizing land. And a, uh, my second question pertains to the uh, Mexican ejido, which is a kind of a commons created by the state, uh, kind of a restitution for uh, indigenous uh, uh, farmers who have, who have been uh, kept out of all the, uh, the large uh, latifundias. Um, so how I, mean, I know Linda that you have done tremendous work comparing uh, Chiapas and Palestine. Uh, how 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 does the Mexican ejido compare with the uh, with the Palestinian Masha or Musha? Um, and recently, in fact, ejidos have been undergoing something similar to the titling that you have spoken about in the camps to allow 
the incorporation of Ehido land, which is legally owned by the state, so to speak, but uh, 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 given to, to, to communities to have access to use it. But it has a kind of a uh, smuggling in privatization of Ehido's uh, circulation through, through land markets. So I wonder how this, this, this compares with the Musha. Those are really great, um, really great questions. I wonder, Nura, please feel free to jump in. Um, in terms of the, the question of development in Palestine, actually that is what most of the literature on the Musha has to say about it. It's actually very, it's fascinating. They talk about how the British were following what they were doing with their other colonial sites, was immediately creating a new economic uh, development project or, or paradigm in, in new territories. And for Palestine, what that meant was precisely the idea that Palestinians aren't being productive, that they're not, that, that you know, they need to get into this eco economic, uh, economics of, um, of efficiency. And so that was very much the British uh, pull to, to create these cadastro maps, the private property maps along with European Jews who wanted to buy land there because they were finding how difficult it was. So it's those two things. A lot of the time in uh, Palestine studies, we learned that it was mostly European Jews, like they were the reason why they, uh, the British wanted to create these maps. Uh, but the British were creating these kinds of cadastral property maps in all of their colonies. Uh, and, and they had this very, this idea precisely as you said, Nazan, the idea that the land was not being used efficiently enough, effectively enough. And so what I added in my piece in Capitalism, Nature, Socialism was the insight of how that then changed these power relations from where before it was you and your neighbor figuring out the border, figuring things out. Now power has to shift over to the colonial centralized regime. So um, the other thing too is the ejido. So yeah, in Mexico, the Mexican revolution uh, of the early 20th century, they say that the, the, one great, the one great success or legacy of the revolution was the state's establishment of, or the protection of common lands. Uh, because the Mexican revolution itself was fought in a moment when foreign, foreigners owned like half of Mexico. And so that was a liberal period. What we get with the, the Zapatista movement that we know of today, of the neo-Zapatistas of the uprising of 1994, their uprising came precisely because when the North American Free Trade Agreement was being signed by, between Mexico, US and Canada, uh, Article 27 of the Mexican constitution, which is what protected the ejido, was to be removed from the constitution so that land could be privatized. And so this is why the Zapatistas declared uh, a self-defensive war against the Mexican government. And it's what allowed them to grow in the years before the uprising. And they were able to take back a lot of land. The Ejido itself though has been contradictory for many many uh, indigenous peoples on the ground be precisely because it's something that is the intermediary is the state between them and the land. Uh, and so it has been controversial in that way. And um, so then the question then becomes how, how to use law strategically or tactically really like as a tool, as part of a bigger strategy to live otherwise. 
that becomes then the question and, and it's uneven in terms of the ways that we see it on the ground. Uh, since since uh, NAFTA, what has happened exactly as you said, Nazan, is that the, a lot of ejido has been uh, privatized. Like there are now like subdivisions and you know gated communities that call themselves ejido, you know, whatever, because that was the name of the land before, but now it's something completely different. I don't know, Nura, if you might have something something you'd like to add? No, I think you said, no, thanks. Yeah, I think you said it, yeah. Uh, I think we might um, we might have time for one more quick question because Nuda needs to... Um, it's okay. I mean, if people want to ask, I, I can stay a bit, no problem. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Wow. What a treat. Thank you. I, I just wanted to add a quick comment about the olive trees and the, as a members of family. When I was doing research in Kenya, the uh, papaya tree was always said to be a common property. Even if it was on your property, people would plant them on the, the border, on the property line, so that if um, a person passing had a upset stomach or had a baby that needed to be fed, they could take a papaya um, and that they, you know, was sort of on this liminally on the border between a private and a common good. And at the same time, young people who, I mean, there was a lot of conditions that made it such that that, that principle couldn't, couldn't hold under conditions where there was so much poverty and dispossession that all of the papayas would just be taken. Um, and people wouldn't leave behind, you know, they wouldn't just take one, they would take them all and maybe sell them. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that the, the conditions created by enclosure make it that much more difficult even for people who have this principle of a common good to really be able to to have that retain its existence because the conditions of enclosure of everyone else around are making it such that that need for survival is is driving common goods into you know private private commodities so just uh it just reminded me of that that uh, the pawpaw tree the papaya tree that's such a great point and such a vivid illustration lee thank you so much and um, finally, we have Danny. Please go ahead, compa. Yes, uh, thanks again. It was a really great conversation and uh, I learned a lot and I appreciate it. So thank you very much. Um, just to pick up on Lee's question a little bit, um, you know, there are all different mechanisms by which we see the capitalization of nature and the conversion into private property. And um, so, you know, there's, judicial, legal, economic means, but I'm also interested in sort of a discussion or thoughts around the notion of ecological imperialism, that in order to confiscate the commons often requires a radical ecological reconstruction of those commons uh, as a means of conquest. So um, for example, the destruction of olive trees, if you can destroy the mechanisms by which that land sustains um, the, po the population being colonized, uh, 
then that becomes a means of subjugation. So, you know, the history of imperialism in Latin America, and I wrote a lot around Central America, you know, one of the first phases of the colonial conquest is actually a war against nature, destroying the ecological foundations uh, by which uh, the conquest, uh, con the, the people who are being colonized live off the land. And so I wonder if you could just elaborate, what are other mechanisms that you might observe by which sort of the destruction or re reconstruction of nature um, becomes a means for the dispossession. And so destruction of all the trees is one, but, you know, obviously water is really important and uh, other resources are really important. So I wonder if you had some thoughts on that. And also, you know, I think I know the answer, but whether the change in government that we're seeing in Israel will, will have any impact. I just, I think we should ask the question. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I have some thoughts, but I wonder, Nura, if you'd like to, um, if you'd like to offer anything in terms of what you, because you live in, in Palestine and you grew up there, so you know this so intimately. I mean, yeah, I haven't been there for a while now, almost nine years. No, I'm thinking about uh, the, the nature uh, element. I mean, you know about the, in Israel, they have been using like there are some areas where they planted them with pine trees. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to remember, sorry, I'm also been a bit off academia since a while because I have been on maternity leave, but I'm trying to remember the argument around it that some areas where they kind of changed the native plants with pine trees as a way to also take hold of land this has been used in some areas like, I mean, pine tree is not a native tree um, to Palestine. Do you know about that, Linda? I can't yeah, it, well, it, it's a strategy that follows what the United States has done, like with the National Park Service is, is to designate like as public state land yeah, areas exactly. that are native lands. And in Israel, the planting of the pine trees happens in that pine trees grow super, super fast. And so then it erases traces of villages there or other of other native of, plants also. Exactly, yeah. native plants. And so then when you go, uh, the idea is for Israel to make it completely just erase any semblances of the past so that it can continue the narrative of there was nothing here, there was nobody here, we're making the desert bloom kind of thing. And it's something that the United States has done, or Israel may have learned from the United States and with the National Park Service in, in making this distinction between nature and humans and saying that they're preserving nature because humans don't know how to be with nature. Although of course, indigenous peoples had a, a traditionally had a, a very uh, respectable relation and still uh, for many of native peoples uh, who are still in struggle. And actually, yeah, so they kind of use it as greening, like nature that has been left arable and arid. But um, actually on that, in the same camp, refugee camp, uh, the Shafat camp, they had uh, uh, pine trees around them. And what they did, they cut the pine trees because they said that this is um, planted by Israel. And then they took over the land and they built on it. But they built on it uh, somehow family houses, not... Uh, not for profit, it was for them to live. But I thought that was an act somehow um, revolutionary, but it was a waqf land. It was owned by the, 
the Muslim Islamic Waqf, and uh, but their act was basically getting rid of that layer that is a colonized layer and somehow liberating the land from the pine trees and kind of using this land for their own expansion because the camp is suffocated. Yeah, so yeah, that's what do you an think? example. Mm. That's a that's a beautiful example. I didn't know about that with Shafat. Yeah. Uh, uh, what do you think about Danny's second question about the uh, the new regime? Or if if it's this regime or if a new regime ah, would help alleviate the situation? The Naftali. Well, um, I, I mean it's it's worse for sure. It's so I mean, what would I I mean this is an he's a he's worse than Netanyahu. I mean, I don't know what more to say. I I I think I mean all the statements that he has been saying about yeah, it's okay to kill Palestinians, it's okay to kill uh, Arabs and um it's just a similar taste, but like stronger than Netanyahu, let's say. I mean, it's, I don't think um, it's going to be any better, of course, worse. What, what do you think, Linda? Yeah, I think it's, a, it's always a good question um, to ask and to, and, and to make clear about regimes. Because yes, it, for sure in Israel, there are debates. There are the more liberal Zionists, and then there are the more... Uh, conservative Zionists, and their main debate is over whether is, is whether over Israel should have settlements in the West Bank. It's not really about should Israel have been created through the ethnic cleansing genocide and continued genocide of the Palestinians. And that has to be, I think, the question. Uh, the whole question of how is it that victims of empire are now working with empire in order to survive. And I think that has to be a question for all of us. I think this is why Palestine is so important because it forces us to ask this question of ourselves and of our movements. And do we want to become equal to our oppressors? Because when we become equal to our oppressors, we become our oppressors, we become oppressors, we become somebody else's oppressors. So this is a question that doesn't seem to be asked in Israel by any of the of the, the dominant political streams. For sure, there are some anarchists in Israel and there are other folks, more orthodox, who do question that even just the idea of whether the state should exist or not. Um, but it's, you know, it's like in the United States, you have the, like Obama, a neoliberal with a smiley face, or you have someone like a George W. Bush or a Trump, especially Trump who is not very sophisticated and is uh, in, 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 in his policies. So then, you know, there are different openings and closures for movements according to who is in office. That, but at the, at the end of the day, they're fighting over preserving a status quo that is extremely unjust and genocidal. So I don't have any, any faith in any of these regimes. Uh, Mazin has a, has a thought, and maybe we can leave Mazin with the last word. Oh, okay, no pressure. Um... Just a quick, a quick, uh, a quick follow-up. Um, uh, I think the the difference between most mainstream Israeli politicians regarding Palestine is how quickly, viciously, and totally the population should be removed, and it's a matter of gradations. But uh, notwithstanding the hopeful signs of Israelis and Palestinians coming together to oppose the Israeli genocidal state. There's something interesting about the Bennett uh, phenomenon, which is that he does not subscribe to the ridiculous illusion of the two-state solution. 
and it would be interesting to see how uh, uh, how how someone who is not uh, participating in that uh, in that uh, discourse would uh, would play in the international uh, you know the never-ending debate about the two-state solution, which has become really obviously a, a ridiculous thing to even ponder. Now, of course, a one state could mean one apartheid state or one state, one binational democratic state. These are uh, things to ponder for the long term. But I think that the Bennett phenomenon is interesting in that one respect that we're going to have to hear a different discourse about the, the state or no state solution, which is the best solution. Thank you for that. Absolutely, Mazen. It is about the expediency of how, how quickly the genocide goes, how quickly the land grabs go or not. And there's just, there's just no more time to lose. It's uh, something different has to happen. Um, well, maybe uh, I, I want to thank Nura uh, and everyone here, everyone who's joined us uh, for our first podcast for Capitalism, Nature, Socialism. Um, Thank you so much. And again, uh, although this is a, the Capitalism, Nature, Socialism podcast, we have a lot of love for other journals, especially ones like Antipode. So please, <laughs> and, and for the really great work that Nuda has written in Antipode. So please do feel, uh, uh, feel free to, or please go check out that piece. Again, Antipode volume 49, number five, Nuda's piece on the enclosures from below. Uh, and I'll pass it on over then to Syed uh, to, to wrap up. Well, it's been an honor uh, and um, uh, very, for me, important learning experience to listen and to uh, understand better. Um, uh, one of the one of those um, situations that are just heart wrenching, and that um, I'm not sure uh, from our position what uh, what best can be done about. But at least starting to. Um, impart more information to more and more people as to how unacceptable this all is, is uh, hopefully a good start, um, or at least to contribute to that end at the very least. Uh, I want to thank uh, Noura Al-Khalili and uh, Linda Kikiwi so much for their wonderful presentations, their continuing work and efforts, and, um, and also everybody who joined uh, in this conversation and for the insightful questions that you've added. And uh, I hope then that um, as many of us as possible and even more people and our relations will join us for the next uh, podcast. And um, I look forward to welcoming other folks, other comrades, and, uh, and for everybody who will be listening to this podcast, thank you very much for your uh, kindness. It's always uh, impressive for anybody these days to find time to listen uh, for more than five minutes. So if we've listened to this long, I thank you even doubly. Many, many thanks and until next time.